Welcome to the Research Recharge Podcast. Recharge your research process with inspiration from UAH faculty and community members. We're your hosts, Heather Lee Byrne and Michael Manasco, librarians at the UAH Salmon Library. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Gary Zank, who is an established member of the international astrophysics community. He has had an amazing career, and we are really lucky to get him on the podcast. Yes, absolutely. I think there are a few things of particular interest that our listeners should pay attention to when Dr. Zank begins to speak on his learned experiences, and particularly the aspect of the international community and the international experiences, as you alluded to, provide a unique lens into what it's like to work within his field, but also in any field that truly requires international communication and collaboration. Yes. And while there are some really specific parts of this interview that only pertain to this field and this, you know, level of scholarship, there are also some points that kind of do draw a through line to some of our other interviews. I mean, some of the, just the things that happen that he describes in his life lead him on a certain career trajectory. One of those particular aspects comes in the form of mentorship. Many researchers and many of our interviewees have alluded to in some fashion, but Dr. Zank in particular, the notion of mentorship and what positive and negative impacts those can have on not only entering a field, but the entire trajectory of one's professional research life. Exactly. We'd also like you to look out for some of the types of research that he is conducting and to just keep an eye on or an ear on some of the types of data sets that he's using, some of his descriptions of his day-to-day work, which is more focused around bringing something new to the field rather than necessarily synthesizing others' work. Absolutely. Let's get to the interview. Today for our podcast, we're welcoming Dr. Gary Zank to our podcast. Uh, Dr. Zank uh, received his PhD in applied mathematics from the University of Natal in South Africa in 1987. Dr. Zank is the Aerojet Rocketdyne Chair in Space Science and the University of Alabama Board of Trustees Trustee Professor. He is the Director of the Center for Space Plasma and Aeronomic Research, or CSPAR, and the Chair of the Department of Space Science at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He has been recognized in his field through the receipt of numerous honors and awards throughout his career, included including being elected as a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in 2016. Dr. Zank, welcome aboard, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Very welcome. Glad to be here. Could you please tell us a little bit about your research in your own words? So um, I started out my life as an applied mathematician and rapidly discovered that doing applied mathematics in a sort of physical in a physical, rele- physically relevant um, sort of field was perhaps more interesting. And so I ended up starting life a little bit as an astrophysicist. I was looking at supernova remnants and how galactic cosmic rays might be accelerated by them and um, sort of soon branched off into space physics and solar physics. And um, that's more or less where I'm at today. I'm, I'm interested in things like how it sounds very boring subject, but how the atmosphere of the sun is heated. It's, it's a peculiar problem because in some way the surface of the sun is really not very hot. 
But on the other hand, its atmosphere is extremely hot. Um, so it's completely the reverse from how a um, person familiar with flying in an aeroplane discovers that the air is much cooler as you go higher and higher up. Um, the reverse is true in the atmosphere of the sun. And as a consequence, the atmosphere of the sun basically boils off the surface of the sun, forms an enormous wind, and that wind expands into the, um, basically into a, creating a bubble in the interstellar medium. And so my interests have been in how that happens and what are the, what is the physics of, of that wind and how does the wind interact with the interstellar medium? So that's sort of what I do. <laughs> That's fascinating. So you, you've mentioned that you started as an, in applied mathematics. Um, how, can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to, what steps in your career brought you to this, um, to the research that you currently do? Um, it's, well, applied mathematics is lovely. It's a, it's a fascinating subject. In part, though, the problems that I worked on as an applied mathematician very, very early on as, as a student were, were driven by plasma physics. So I kind of learned plasma physics on the way. Um, and then um, I <clears throat> wanted to be a postdoc. And, and so um, I then left for Germany and, and the person who was interested in having me as a postdoc turned out to be an astrophysicist. And, and so I spent some time there, that was in Heidelberg in Germany, and then from there I went to another Max Planck Institute um, further north in Germany and worked with a, a very famous person um, who was perhaps one of the fathers of, of space physics, and so I naturally ended up in space physics, and then I moved from there to the US and again in a sort of space physics environment. So in part, it was driven by, I guess, the availability of jobs and money. And, um, but it's, it was all related and somehow it just happened to work out in, in a very satisfying way and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I suspect I could have, I would have found it almost as interesting as doing, you know, partial differential equations in a financial setting with a bank, perhaps, and earning a lot more than I would typically earn as a postdoc, but <laughs> this is the direction I went into. Well, it sounds fascinating. So do you remember a particular breakthrough moment where you really got what research in your field was going to be like or when it clicked for you um just to th throw out some examples uh, do you remember a moment was it in your undergraduate study uh you mentioned uh, being a postdoc uh dissertation writing was it in the field itself do you remember any aha moments in terms of being a researcher that stand out to you um it, it for me it was i guess i was quite lucky it happened very early on i was um this was when I was in South Africa and I had just completed my, um, my uh, undergraduate degrees and, and had started working towards a master's degree. And um, the person that I was working with, very, very, very um, good person by the name of Jim McKenzie, sadly deceased. Um, he, I had started work, it's the story. <laughs> I guess the story is a little complicated. I, I had started working with the chair of the, the applied math department at the time. And um, 
um, he had asked me to look at a particular problem on the classification of partial differential equations. And I started looking that, at that. And, um, uh, you know, a sort of month or two after starting on that, I went to him and I said, well, I think this is quite interesting, but what I really think it would be especially interesting is to work on something called pseudo differential operators. And, and he kind of looked at me and he said to me, you must be crazy if you think that I'm going to learn anything new like that at this stage in my career. So <laughs> as, a, as a very young aspirant um, applied mathematician, I was thoroughly disappointed by the response. And I went to cry on, uh, I was happened to be staying next to a member of the, uh, another, uh, I was living next door to a faculty member um, um, in the department and I kind of went and cried on his shoulder a little about, you know, this, this, you know, not being able to uh, do research into this particular field. And uh, I didn't realize there was some complicated politics going on. And he immediately said to me, well, I have an interesting problem for you. And um, it happened to be um, related to a problem that um, some of the plasma physicists in the physics department were worrying about. And so he said, well, why don't you go and think about this and calculate what the um, expected wave field should be? And so I went away and I managed to do that calculation. And in some sense, that was kind of the breakthrough moment, even though it happened very soon, because um, there was a sort of sense of exaltation at having been able to explain theoretically uh, what was being observed in a laboratory plasma experiment. Um, they had managed to measure this wave field and they had certain plots and I was able theoretically to derive what they were seeing analytically and it, you know, felt quite fantastic to be able to overlay the observations with the, um, with, with, with the theory that I had put together. And I guess it kind of always went from there. So at that point, I think that A, I discovered that you could formulate problems that actually answered questions in nature, and you could test those formulations and, uh, and then predict other things. So we predicted some other interesting aspects to this problem, and the plasma physicists went back to their laboratory and made some further measurements and lo and behold, it turned out that those predictions were, um, were, were met. And in some ways, I guess I never really lost the joy and excitement of that, of that first calculation. And so today, uh, you know, I mean, I guess it must've been maybe a month and a half ago, I just had a paper accepted in the Astrophysical Journal and um, I remember getting some plots back from one of my excellent postdocs who works with me. And the plots um, were a theoretical prediction of what might be seen downstream of, 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 of a shock wave, basically a turbulent spectrum that was predicted by a theoretical model that I put together. And um, he had compared that with three different um, shocks that were observed in the interplanetary medium. And the fit was absolutely remarkable across all three. And I remember taking this figure up to my wife who was <laughs> sitting upstairs and, and showing it to her and, and saying, isn't this absolutely, absolutely remarkable how you can take, you know, a sort of 
very abstract mathematical idea and it has you know sort of a real observational realization that it and it matches you know there's something magical about it and uh, i'm not sure i can explain it better than that but you know so to this day i still can get that same sense of exaltation and i guess joy and pleasure out of out of seeing how that happens odd thing but well i guess some things thrill some people and that's what thrills me <laughs> I think that's great. And I think as a researcher, that's something that most researchers hope to fill throughout their career. Um, on that note, you, you talk about getting that feedback or getting that sort of uh, feedback loop either, either from, you mentioned, a, a postdoc of yours or your own uh, sort of acknowledgement of, of seeing this process in action. Uh, on that note, there's been a bit of a boom, I think people would say over the years, in open science, openly accessible data. Uh, you talk about primary research, uh, but uh, finding secondary research on your own, uh, your own exposure over the years to different platforms and obviously subscription journals and, and data sets that are hidden away often behind budgetary concerns or other uh, gateways. Have you noticed this sort of boom in open, openly accessible science having an, a noticeable impact in your own research, uh, either for good or ill? Um, not a great deal. I mean, I, I was quite fortunate in a way. I mean, for a period when I started out, there was, um, you know, especially with some of the data that came from NASA back in the 19, late 1980s and, and early 1990s, there was still a tendency for data from spacecraft to, in a sense, belong to the principal investigator. Um, and 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 it, it was to some extent a somewhat closed off club and if you weren't part of that you couldn't get the data and i do remember um writing a um i had to i was asked to review um some proposals for what was then the ulysses mission a very interesting nasa mission that had a spacecraft that and it was a combination European Space Agency NASA mission that had a spacecraft that flew over the poles of the sun. Anyway, I was sent a sort of number of proposals to review <clears throat> related to this mission. It had already been running for five or six years. And I remember writing back in my review with considerable irritation that um, while I was thought that some of these um, some of these proposals were, were very good. Um, I felt that it was very unreasonable that these proposals were restricted only to the people who happened to be in at the genesis of the mission. And um, I, I don't think I had anything to do with it, but I suspect there were other people also very much involved. I was very young at the time. Um, but at that point, uh, shortly after that, the um, Ulysses mission was opened up to everybody. And, and since, you know, since that time, NASA missions now have a period where there's a, a short period where the data in a sense belongs to the PI and the team may last for no more than maybe five, six, seven months. <clears throat> Part of that is to make sure that the data is, 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 um, is suitable, that there are, you know, all the you know there are complications associated with with new newly collected data calibration and 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 getting rid of all sorts of other junk that often finds its way into it so you know just preparing the data is a very critical and important component so for 6 months you don't have that data but then it becomes open to everyone 
And, um, and that's the way it should be. I mean, after all, taxpayers are paying for this data in a sense, and so everybody should have access to it. And, um, and so while it hasn't made to me a huge noticeable difference in, in my science, because I was fortunate to be doing science at a time when most of it was open, um, I do recall the days when it wasn't, and, and that transition has been really quite major and important. Wonderful. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit and talk a little bit about what your, um, you know, daily or typical research process looks like. You've mentioned collaborating with um, folks in laboratories who are, you know, proving these models that you've described so, you know, so passionately um, working out. Um, What, so if you could just give us a little bit of a sense of how that collaboration works and how your research kind of, kind of goes on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, um, I, I, so every time I, we, you know, the university has this thing that we have to complete every year called a faculty activity report. And at the end, they ask for a self-assessment. And, and I've never completed one of those self-assessments beyond writing one sentence since I've been at UAH. And that is always, um, you know, figure out a, a way to, to, to create extra time in my life. Um, and, and, and so, so most of my day in a sense is to try to get past all the stuff that I have to do that I don't particularly get excited about, like dealing with being a chair of the department and director of a center and then all the other things that, that I, that cross my desk. I mean, it's just awful. And so, so my day is sort of an exercise in frantically trying to get that stuff out of my way so that I can get an hour or if I'm really lucky, two hours to, to work on my own um, and, and work on my research. And so, um, so the, the way I tend to work is, um, I'm not sure if it's typical, but um, I guess because of all the different things I do, I'm also an editor and on the Astrophysical Journal, because of all the things I do, uh, there's, there's a very clear sense of the, the interesting problems that are out there. And, and if I ever sat down, I could probably fill several, well, actually probably several notebooks, but certainly many, many pages of important and interesting problems that need to be figured out. Um, and so, um, so it's just a matter of, of playing with all of those problems whenever I get the time. And that can be, uh, you know, if there's a, a problem that I think really probably needs most of my attention, like the one I just worked on, um, you know, it, it may have a somewhat complicated formulation and theoretical development that needs to be done. Well, what I'll typically do in that case is I'll go through pages and pages. I mean, uh, you know, this, this most recent thing, there's the calculation. Actually, the, the two last papers that I published as first author, each of them probably had anything from 150 to 200 pages of just various ca- calculations that went through it. And so I'll do that. And because I never have as much time as I would like, I then pick that calculation up and I send it to two or three of my postdocs and ask them to see whether my algebra and my has is, is, is correct. And invariably they'll come back with questions and so forth. 
Um, and then I will ask them to help me with perhaps, you know, plotting sometimes very complicated relations, but also go back and ask them to help me dig out some stuff in, in, in the data, like looking downstream of shocks or whatever, to generate certain figures that can be related to the theory and to, you know, in effect, test its validity against observations. So that's one way of doing things. Other times I'll have done a particular problem and um, I'll have then um, one of the postdocs or a student. Um, if, if the problem's not massively urgent, I'll pass it on to a student. Um, but if, it's, if, it's, if there's a lot of competition in the field, I'll generally get a postdoc to work on it. And so then um, I'll outline what I think needs to be done. And, and, and so they will sort of start working on it directly themselves with lots of feedback from me. Um, and so that's sort of another way of doing it. And then sometimes if it's a problem that in a sense is not too necessarily complicated, but has, um, uh, you know, sort of interesting long-term implications, um, that's something, and that's something I, I might typically give to a student to work on. Sometimes I'll do part of a preliminary calculation so that they see where to go, and then I'll just let them go at it, and uh, they can either work at it analytically, or they can develop some, uh, you know, work with with, you know, some some nice codes that that are available, and then there's just lots of feedback with that. Um, so that's sort of three very directed ways. Um, but then I also work with a lot of colleagues around the world. And, um, and so they'll sometimes approach me about certain problems. And um, there sometimes my engagement may be at a little higher a level because, you know, they're, they're experienced and colleagues and they don't necessarily need to see a detailed calculation unless there's something that comes out directly. But there's again a lot of engagement and it's often related to observations and how to interpret them in terms of theoretical models that I may have put together in the past. Um, so yeah, they're just different ways of doing it, but it's kind of fun, all different approaches. So, yeah. That sounds great. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really interesting to hear about, you know, what this process looks like at such a high level. So thank you for sharing. You're welcome. What one of the, uh, on that note, one of the uh, topics we, we discuss a lot here on this podcast and in general in our work as librarians is this nature of uh, research as being uh, often a very collaborative and multidisciplinary experience. And you've given many examples of that so far. And throughout your career, you have several um, examples where you collaborate or have collaborated with uh, teams of people or individuals ranging from government agencies to academic institutions uh, simultaneously at times, I, I imagine. Uh, on that note, uh, regarding multidisciplinary research, is there anything specifically about your experiences with having to collaborate or wanting to collaborate with these different entities at once that you could point out that would be helpful to people in other disciplines, other academic disciplines that would sort of translate, you know, ways that you've been able to navigate those fields uh, in a multidisciplinary collaborative environment. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I, and one I'm not entirely sure how to answer because, um, you know, 
you have to know how to talk to one another first. So there has to be some level of, of, of commonality between the problems you're looking at. So, so it can't be too removed, but you have to be able to see the overlap. So, so here's a really kind of extreme example of, of something that I did many years ago that, that really takes, um, you know, something that would ordinarily not be, or two examples that I can give that ordinarily are not married. So um, <laughs> it, it, I, lo I love to swim, as, uh, you know, so, so um, it turned out that when I was at both the University of Delaware and in the university, at the University of California in Riverside, um, a couple of the people that I swam with happened to be, the one, the one um, did agricultural work, um, but, but related to um, the effect of, <clears throat> of, of pests on, on agriculture. This was in California. And then the other colleague of mine in, in Delaware was um, somebody who, who kind of looked at the modeling of, of um, invasive species, such as, you know, sometimes plants, could be insects or, or any other thing. And, um, you know, we kind of just, in both cases, I started, you know, was chatting, you know, we knew one another from the swimming, but we started chatting about what it was that the other did. And so I got very interested in what, what in, in the approaches that they were using to try and describe how an invasive species was modeled and so, you know, uh, and, and how it then propagated. And so um, I was kind of a little bit critical about the way in which they were doing it and um, suggested that, you know, actually, this problem could be done in a, a rather more sophisticated way, in part because of my background with, with dealing with how, oddly enough, energetic charged particles propagate in a turbulent magnetic magnetized fluid or flow. And, 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 but at the same time, there were important differences because you have to take into account um, things like, uh, you know, um, um, the, 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 the breeding characteristics of invasive species, um, you have to take into account the possibility of, of uh, you know, of, of, uh, you know, female ma males meeting and propagating. And anyway, so there are a whole bunch of different things that need to be, be done. So it reached a point, though, where we actually managed to write a proposal together, which unfortunately wasn't funded and both for both of them. But, um, but I kind of put together interesting mathematical models that would allow you to do that. Um, so, so what the key, what was the key to that? A, I think it was being able to talk to one another and, and find what the other was, was doing was interesting, but there was certain, there were, there was an element enough that there were ways where you could see some of what, I knew and some of what they knew um, could could intersect in an interesting way um, and and so that kind of discussion then happened and you know quite naturally and then when I did both of these things I was a lot younger and had a lot more time <laughs> so it comes back to one or other of those people needs to have some time available to really develop those ideas and so multidisciplinary coupling of, of um, different problems that are outside one's, one's ordinary sphere um, sort of require, you know, as I said, uh, three things. One is there has to be some level of overlap that's apparent. 
there has to be an ability to talk to one another and, and sort of respect and find the other person's in ideas interesting. And one of you has to be either young enough or have the time available to, in fact, invest some time in that. And that also means that you need some degree of flexibility financially. So um, if you're going for tenure, it's not often a good idea to do this because, you know, you can easily get sidetracked into something that's not going to help give you tenure. Or if you're on soft money, you'd better go out and get hard, you get, get, get funding to support this or whatever. So Multidisciplinary research is, is complicated from you know, a variety of perspectives, but it can be done and can be done very usefully. And um, I'm not sure how well the other universities or the funding agencies really do um, allow such multi-collaborative, multidisciplinary projects to flourish. It's, it's a problem. Um, sort of maybe inherent in the structure of both organ sets of organizations. Okay, well, that thank you for sense. those insights. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think in academia, especially, it's, 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 it's easy to uh, silo ourselves off and get tunnel vision uh, because there are, there are, there are uh, tenure concerns, there are other research concerns as well, funding, but also it's, it's good to hear also that it's possible and uh, I, think, I think most researchers should take advantage of the platforms available today to communicate and mm -hmm. see where we can learn from one another. Again, it's, it's easy to lose sight of the overall mission to, to bring your own research to the greater academic community. So it's good to hear. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I'm going to end with our uh, final question, which is just simply to ask you, what was the last thing that you Googled? Yeah, no, I saw that. Uh, <laughs> okay, that was probably last night. So, um, so I, I'm I'm reading um, this book by J.M. Kutsi called um, "Waiting for the Barbarians," and um, it's 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 very interesting book. Obviously, he's a renowned writer, um, and but the book is presented in in this. Well, he does write in a kind of complicated way, and so it's kind of difficult to extract from it precisely where he set the novel and and you know at one level it almost reads as though it's it's um you know ro you know sort of romanesque you can you can sort of see there there's this sort of outpost and so forth that looks like uh, that uh, you know the the barbarians are just beyond the gates of this roman empire outpost on the other hand it also has a feeling of colonialism as well because he talks a little bit about somehow feeds guns into there very briefly, but somehow or other, it, it sort of smacks a bit of that. Um, and at the same time, of course, Kutsi came from South Africa and, and you know, grew up and, and lived under the apartheid South African regime. And so there's sort of a certain resonance of all of that as well in how you treat people that um, are outside your particular group or so and so forth. So I was trying to put together and try and understand all these three different sort of conflicting perspectives in the book. And, and so I felt that I should, so, so I kind of wanted to go back and just go back to Wikipedia and just read about, you know, J.M. Kutsi's upbringing and his education and so forth, which I'd never really done before. And so that's kind of what I ended up reading um, or, or Googling last night. So 
pretty crazy thing to do, I suppose. But anyway, no, that's great. I think that's very normal. And now you've added something to my own reading list. So I thank you for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely worth reading. It's a fascinating book. And uh, he's a wonderful author and great command of the language. So worth, worth exploring. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Zink. This has been really wonderful. Okay, yes, thank well, you. very welcome. Hope you enjoyed it then. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks then. Bye-bye. So a lot of really interesting stuff from Dr. Zank. That was a really fascinating interview. Um, some of the things that stood out for me were collaboration and mentorship. He spoke about his mentor, who at first wasn't very supportive. He, as a postdoc, he was in a situation where he wanted to try something different and was not encouraged. But he found another faculty member who just happened to be next door or a neighbor and was able to help him explore this new avenue that became his direction for his research, which is really interesting. And it reminds me of some of our other guests who have also pointed out that sometimes your research topic can really be influenced by life events, by um, just the places that you happen to go um, and the directions that you happen to be pushed in, such as Dr. Zank mentioned his colleague that he uh, was not in the same field, but that he developed a grant proposal with someone who he met swimming. Right, exactly. And this comes back to that uh, infectious enthusiasm again he had for this, you know, that first calculation and leading to his discovery and an avenue to discovery opened up by a colleague who listened to him. And so when he, when he collaborated with these, you know, with the swimming story and he talks about the other collaborations where he reached across the aisle, essentially, with other disciplines, it highlighted for me the ongoing need to, when we're talking about multidisciplinary research, let's remember out there that that may be a collaboration on a conference paper, but for him, for Dr. Zank, he talked a lot about data sharing. You know, he talked about the types of raw data he wanted to work with and to publish, right? And that leads us into, I think, this maybe you want to say new world we're in now where uh, we do live in a world we need to acknowledge that has uh, multiple avenues of data sharing, multiple avenues of data publishing, and so when open science came up in our interview with him, that's where he seemed to spend his time on. And I think that's interesting because, uh, you know, those of you who are familiar or maybe aren't as familiar with what that might mean, there are lots of depositories or repositories out there of raw data. Uh, there are some popular ones like data.gov, government sources, Dryad, um, other sorts of just raw data repositories that, you know, certain scholars in certain fields may look at that and say, I don't know what any of this is. Uh, there are no journals here. It's just a bunch of data. But if we look closer, there are a lot of useful resources like that out there where people like Dr. Zank, that's what they want. And because of those repositories to dump that data out there, uh, and that, that is where we open up these avenues of communication on a global scale, where people can collaborate now and then uh, create something new. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that um, trying to put something new out there. Dr. Zank really put that in emphasis on creating a new calculation, being able to visualize or um, model mathematically these incredibly complex natural phenomena, um, being able to, you know, add to the body of knowledge. That was really, really interesting. Thank you for listening to the Research Recharge podcast. We are Heather Lee Byrne and Michael Manasco, librarians at the University of Alabama in Huntsville's Salmon Library. We would like to thank the UAH and Library Administration for their support. Our theme music was written by UAH alum Jason Conklin and performed by current student Jackson Love. Thanks to you both. We also want to thank Leslie Bardos for our graphic. Please join us next time on the Research Recharge podcast. <laughs>